So my junior year at Mississippi State, this would have been around the year 2003, a man started showing up on campus right outside of the student union between the union and the post office. His name was Michael. And Michael would stand out there with a Bible in his hand and just yell at everybody. Not nice yelling either, if there is such a thing. This was mean yelling. And Michael's message to anybody within earshot was very simple. You are all sinners and you're destined for hell. And unless you stop your sinning completely, there is no hope for you. And that was pretty much it. Very loud, very condescending, very mean. Now, I was a young Christian at the time, and I didn't take too kindly to that message or the, uh, you know, the, the way of it being presented. And so I took my Bible out there in hopes that I could argue him into the ground, I guess. I don't know what I was thinking was going to happen. But I took my Bible out there, and I tried. You know, I didn't know a whole lot at that point, but I knew enough to say, okay, yeah, listen, I, we're all sinners. Yes, you got that part right. But God loves us. And God gave His Son for us so that we could be saved not by our own righteousness, but instead through the forgiveness of our sins, paid for, purchased by Jesus. And so our hope is not in our own holy behavior. Our hope is only in the grace of Jesus who died in our place and on our behalf. I knew enough to know that. But Michael just wouldn't hear of it. Jesus, he said only forgives our past sins, not present, not future. So if there's any sin in your life right now, you're out. You cannot go to heaven. You do not belong to God. And one of the scriptures Michael would often point to in support of that argument was 1 John chapter 3, our text for this morning. And so I want us to read it up front together, the full paragraph verses 3 through 10, and uh, we'll see, I hope together this morning, what a daunting scripture this is for us, potentially. So beginning with the verse we ended on last week, 1 John 3, 3, look with me now at this paragraph here, and, uh, and let's feel the sting together. John says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Jesus sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 
So I don't know, maybe Michael was right. I mean, what do we make of this? You read it. I mean, at face value, it seems fairly cut and dry. Verse 6 says, no one who sins has either seen Jesus or knows him. Does that mean what it appears to mean? Well, let's dig in together on this. And y'all, just a quick note as we start. There's only so much we can cover in one sermon. And so please catch up with me or Pastor Aaron or Pastor Evan or one of our elders if you ever want to meet up and dig deeper into Scripture or to questions you may have. Nothing pleases us more than, than an opportunity like that. The invitation is always open, I promise, always. But today, let's just start in verse 7. Right there in the middle, look at verse 7. There's an important note I want to point out here. John says in verse 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Now, one of the clear themes throughout this whole letter is John's war against false teaching. Even here in the middle of this scripture, he's warning the church against deception. Now, is that just a general warning? No, there's a a specific nature here to what John is warning them about. Specifically here, there were people, false teachers, trying to infiltrate the church, and they were claiming, you can have fellowship with God while still living any way you want. Your behavior has nothing to do with your spirituality. Sin all you want. It doesn't matter. That's that's the body. That's the world. That's not the spirit. Those two things are separate. Well, that's false teaching. That's deception. Now, of course, I just mentioned this. There are other people who are on the far end of that spectrum. On the other side, people like Michael who say, no, your behavior is the only measure of your spirituality. Your behavior is everything. It's all about what you do or don't do. And I'm here to tell us that both ideas, both ends, both extremes are wrong this morning. It does matter how you live, but it's not exclusively how you live that makes up the Christian life. They're both wrong. I hope that in the next 20 minutes or so we see why, okay? So let's let's begin in, in, in considering 1 John 3, verses 3 through 10, this very daunting passage of Scripture. I want to begin by hopefully showing us a few things that this paragraph cannot mean. When John says, no one who sins has seen Jesus or knows him. All right. Based only on what John has already told us in the first two chapters, there are at least three things that that cannot mean here. Okay? So the first thing that what we read can't mean, it can't mean that Christians never sin. Because we recall, I hope, what John has already told us back in chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, listen to this. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. That couldn't be any clearer. What we just read can't mean that Christians never sin. Second, it can't mean that our sin terminates our relationship with God. As Michael used to preach on campus, if you have sin in your life, you're out. It can't mean that because John, 1 John chapter 2. We recall this also, I hope. John says, if anyone sins, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We preached this a few weeks ago, that Jesus Christ, right now, present tense, He stands on our behalf when we sin. That's what advocacy means. That Jesus does not forsake us, but He draws near to us. He cleanses us. He restores us. He advocates for us. And thirdly, it can't mean that our behavior is the thing that makes us right with God. Because immediately after that verse we just read in chapter 2, John also says, and Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. This means that Jesus gave himself in our place on the cross. Jesus suffered for our sins so that he might substitute himself. He takes on the judgment that we deserve so that we now might be accepted as righteous before God, not by a righteousness of our own, but by the righteousness that He provides for us in Himself. Y'all, we contribute nothing to this equation. Not one ounce of your own holiness can save you, or even make you savable. It's not a half and half proposition. Only Jesus Christ can save us, and our salvation is entirely His work, His gift for us. Now, I mentioned those three things that this Scripture can't mean, because we've got to be settled on this. It can't mean that Christians never sin. It can't mean that our sin disqualifies us from relationship with God, and it certainly can't mean that it's our behavior that saves us. Y'all, here's why I want to be clear on those things first because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Certainly John is not contradicting himself within his own letter. Okay, so what does he mean then? What is he saying in chapter 3? Well, let's, let's just pull some of these pieces apart, and hopefully we'll see a little more clearly together this morning. Look with me now at verse 4. 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone, John says, who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Y'all, that word lawlessness is, is kind of rare in the Scripture. It's only here in John, only once. What it means, it's a defiant, rebellious posture against God. This is not just dabbling and struggling in sin periodically. This is a way of life. A person who very consciously says, I know what's right and what's wrong. I know what God commands, but I will do what I want. I will not be constrained by God's word. My will is supreme over his. That's what lawlessness is. It's a posture. And so what we see there in verse 4 is a posture that produces a practice. Everyone who practices sin... John says, practices lawlessness. And so what we have in view in that verse is a settled habit of sin, a way of life. And I feel very confident here that John, in chapter 3, is echoing Jesus from John chapter 8. In John 8, listen to what Jesus says. In John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits or practices 
Sin is the slave of sin. Jesus is saying the person who practices sin is bound to it, shackled up by it, identified with it. A slave, that's the person's identity in this case. And see, in, in John and Jesus' case, both they're, they're, they're communicating something that's deeper than just human activity. It goes to the heart. And even deeper than that, John and Jesus are in concert together, that the act of sinning comes from the root of sin. And that goes even deeper than the human heart. Look at 1 John 3, 8 now. Verse 8, John says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. I mentioned already, John is simply echoing Jesus here. Again, from John chapter 8. Jesus is confronting people who stand against him. They claim that they have no need of what Jesus has come to give them because God is already their father. They're good Jewish people. They already know the Bible. Abraham's our father. God's our father. They're good. They have no need for anything else. And Jesus says to them, no. You are of your father, the devil. And you do his desires. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So the best I can do here, I want to try to link these chains together that we see in 1 John 3. The one who practices sin is bound to sin. Tied up in it, chained to it. Or in Jesus' words, such a person is the slave of sin. And who is this person enslaved to? The devil. Now, this makes us uncomfortable, perhaps. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable to think of demons and angels and devils and things like this, right? But, but y'all, this is so important for us to understand. Sin is not just inappropriate behavior. Sin is a deep-down spiritual reality. Sin is corruption of the heart and the soul which takes its stand against the goodness and the holiness of God. This is why I think John says there in verse 6, no one who sins has seen Jesus or knows Him because the person John has in mind is a person who is enslaved to spiritual darkness. They can't see Jesus. They are blind to God. Why? Because, in the Apostle Paul's words, they are held captive by the devil to do his will. Now, there's a challenge buried in this, certainly for me, because, y'all, I tend to have a default thought about sin that keeps sin mainly above the surface. And like I said a moment ago, there's a way of defining sin as just, it's just inappropriate behavior, right? There are certain things we all know we shouldn't do and things we shouldn't say and things we shouldn't watch. And, you know, I, I, know, I know that uh, I need to clean up my language. I know I need to stop losing my temper. I know I should, I should be less judgmental, right? We all have those thoughts. We all know those things are true about us one way or the other. But, y'all, if we're not careful right there, we will reduce sin to something we feel like we could manage. Behavior that could be managed or suppressed or even done away with with enough discipline, enough self-control, enough you know, motivation. And that is not how the Scripture defines terms. 
Sin is not something that exists on the surface, but far below. Sin, John says, at its roots is lawlessness. It is defiance. It is rebellion toward God. It's enslavement to the devil. And only if we see sin that deeply and profoundly can we understand why John speaks with such sharpness and such abrasion about it. Otherwise, John's words make no sense. If, if sin were just something we could manage, then what we're seeing here, it's, it's, it's too scary the way John speaks about it. Because we know we sin. In that case, what John is saying is, if you don't get your sin under control and manage it better, then you're out of God's favor forever. But if we understand the depth of rebellion, the depth of Satan's power over us, then we begin to understand the depth of God's power in intervening. What God alone had to do in order for us to address sin at the very deepest level. And y'all, this is where the good news comes into play here. The bad news is that those who practice sin do not know God because they are enslaved to a different father. We are children of the devil. That's, that's, there's no positive spin for that. There can only be good news to counteract, to come flooding in. And we see that in verse 5 now. Look at verse 5. You know, John says, that He appeared. Jesus came in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. That's the amazing grace of the Gospel right there in one sentence. That Jesus came to take away our sins. How? By bearing them Himself on the cross. By taking them. Jesus, y'all think about this now. Because again, if sin is just a surface issue, then Jesus did us a wonderful favor. But it's not something I couldn't have done myself with enough effort. That's not good news. Jesus at the cross took on Himself our lawlessness. All of our defiance. All of your rebellion. All of your guilt. All of your shame. All of the condemnation that we in our sins have deserved. Jesus removed it from us by taking it upon Himself. He suffered for us in our place. And so the Bible says, as far now as the east is from the west, so far God has removed our sins from us. And He's done it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And y'all, this is not just a reflection of our past sins. Which would be wonderful, by the way. If Jesus just forgave all the past sins up until the moment I believed Him, and now it's up to me to take the baton and run. I mean, that'd be better than nothing. But that's not the Gospel. We've already seen this from 1 John 1, 1 John 2. God forgives us. God cleanses us. Present tense. If we confess our sins, God is faithful. Is, is, is. Present tense. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even right now, when we sin, we have an advocate. One who comes near rather than being repelled. One who draws in to those He loves to stand on their behalf rather than shutting us out. He is Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And He is for you. Now there at the end of verse 5, John makes another statement about Jesus. It's one we could almost miss. 
John says something about him here, very profound. He says, in him there is no sin. Now, on one level, we affirm what the Scripture teaches, that Jesus Christ, in all the years he walked on this earth, about 33 years, never once, as a man, did he commit sin. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He never sinned. But this verse is actually going deeper than that. John is saying, in Jesus, there is no sin, which is a statement not just about Jesus' discipline or self-control. It's a statement of his very nature, of who he is. Jesus is perfect in purity, in holiness, and in righteousness. Uh, John said in chapter 1 that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's what we say of Christ. That's who He is. This is why John can say in the very next breath, John chapter 6, or or, or, sorry, 1 John 3 verse 6, no one who abides in Him sins. Now we've already seen how Jesus came to take away the guilt and the penalty of sin by His death in our place. But here in verses 5 and 6, we also see Jesus is able to take away the ruling power of sin. To abide in Christ means we truly trust Jesus. We depend on His grace and mercy. It means that we treasure Him. We we seek to honor and obey Him. Again, you don't abide on the surface any more than you sin on the surface. It's a deep-down relationship that we're being called into that to trust Jesus means that He takes center stage In your life, He becomes the animating center of your life. As He should be. And so John's logic here makes perfect sense. In Him, there is no sin. Therefore, no one who abides in Him sins. In Him, there is no sin. Therefore, those who abide in Him also live now in purity. The power of sin in all of its darkness and defiance and rebellion, is broken now for those who know Christ. If you belong to Him, you are no longer enslaved to sin, to the devil. Or to state it more positively, again, hearkening back to John 8. Read John 8, by the way. We studied this in men's group last Monday. A perfect parallel to this Scripture. Jesus says in John 8, If everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son makes you free, then you are truly free. That's what we are now by His grace. We're not just free now from the penalty of sin, but the ruling power, the enslavement of sin is no longer binding upon us because we abide in Him. Now, y'all, let's, let's pause for a second. Let me, let me give us a little football story here to bring things home if I can. Back in the day, probably the same day that I uh, started with here, 02, 03 maybe, we were at football practice one day, and I, I was in a real funk. Every pass that I threw was just sinking into the ground. Everything was off target. I just kept getting more frustrated, and nothing was improving The more I thought about it, the worse it got, and and just there was no coming out of this funk. And so our quarterback coach, Sparky Woods, pulled me aside, like way aside, away from from everybody else, and he said, Kyle, I got bad news for you. 
you're off the team. I, don't, I, didn't know, like, I didn't know what he was about to tell me. But he gave me a new phrase, something I'd never heard before. He said, Kyle, you got a loser's limp. I don't know if y'all ever heard that before. That was new to me. He said, everything about you, your thoughts, your body language, your throws, all of it is bad. And you've just accepted it so that there's no coming out of it. You've got to distance yourself for a minute and get things figured out. Well, he was right. I had a loser's limp. Everything was going wrong, and I just accepted it, and so there was no coming out of it. And y'all, I just want to say, I know this for a fact, that some of us, many of us, we function just like that when it comes to, to our battle with sin. Oftentimes, it's one particular sin that haunts us, that we struggle with, and maybe have for a long time. You assume, perhaps, that because this one sin is so powerful, it's so tempting, it's so long-standing, long-running in your life, that there's just no overcoming it, and so you've just accepted it. And now you just walk with it, you live with it, and you come to a point of, of acceptance. And you know, I, I want to call us today, in light of this Scripture, in light of the truth of the Gospel, that we would reject that way of thinking. In your own strength and power, perhaps, yes, you, you've got a loser's limp, there's no overcoming that. But that's not what we are anymore. That's not what Jesus Christ has come to do. He didn't come to simply forgive our sins in word only and then leave us as we are. No, the Scripture says if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave, you are a son. You are free. And this gets down to the root of things now all over again. Remember, beyond the fact that sin is lawlessness, John says sin comes from the devil. It has a deeper root than what we can possibly imagine or reckon with. But just as sin has its roots... In, in spiritual reality, so does righteousness. And now I want us to see this here as we turn the final corner here. In 1 John 3, verse 8, look at the contrast now that John paints for us. He gives us the bad news, the root of sin. The one who practices sin, John says, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But now look. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works. No one who is born of God practices sin because God's seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. See, John has already told us that Jesus came to take away sins, but now he goes even deeper into the roots of it. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. If you are in Christ if you trust Him for His grace to save you, then you are no longer held captive by the devil to do His will. You are no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 9, we just read it, says, you are now born of God. You are His child. You have His very divine seed, John says, abiding in you, which means we have a new nature. We have God's very Spirit at home in us and at work in us. And so that's why the Apostle Paul commands us. He says, put on the new self. Cast off the old self with its sins and lusts and desires. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. Y'all, I can't stress this enough. If all Jesus did on the cross was forgive our sins and leave us unchanged, 
that would be a wonderful divine gift. But we would only perpetually end up in the same place the very next day. In need of another cross, another substitute. Further salvation. No, Jesus Christ died for all of our sins for all time and He brings us a new heart. He puts His very Spirit within us and He changes us. We are not what we were any longer. That's why John says we can't practice sin anymore. He who is born of God, who has this divine seed at work in him, cannot sin. Of course, that doesn't mean can't ever sin. It means that we can no longer stand in defiance and rebellion and darkness and enslavement. We are sons of God. Sin isn't who we are anymore. And so here's what I hope we would take away this morning. Both ends, both extremes I mentioned earlier are both wrong. There's one person who might say your behavior doesn't matter at all. All that matters is that you have spiritual fellowship with God. Live however you want. Wrong. The other side says how you live is the only measure of whether you know God. Also wrong. But y'all, if we find, I hope, that the center here, the truth, in looking at this paragraph, We fight the temptation this morning to become paralyzed, to become despairing. Don't read this at what what, what appears to be face value and come to the conclusion that no matter how much I trust Jesus, no matter how much I despair over sin, if I struggle with it still, then I'm out somehow. Now, in that case, we've missed John's point. Y'all, surely John is not writing to the church in an effort to heap crippling doubt upon us. That would be a strange letter to read in the New Testament. No. John is writing to spur us on to greater faith, greater fruitfulness, greater light. And so two things can be true at once, and I want to close this way. Two things that might seem to contradict and yet are both true at once. One, I am a sinner. Nobody should be more realistic about sin than a Christian. We should freely admit that we all once were held captive by the devil, just as John says and Jesus says. We were once enslaved to sin. We were defiant toward God. Some of us in greater measure, perhaps some of us in lesser. Some of us did it while looking very nice to the outside world. But all the same, we once lived in darkness, dead in our sins. Our plight was so bad that only divine intervention could save us. That's the point. But y'all, it's on that truth that we stake our hope. That divine intervention came. That Jesus Christ, God's Son, came to take away our sins. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And so now, by faith in Him alone, we are forgiven, we are redeemed, we are made free. As far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed our transgressions from us. Y'all, that is real grace for real sinners. And there is no hope otherwise. It's it's okay to admit it. I'm a sinner. But secondly, I am a child of God. Meaning, me and you, we have been born of Him. We are born again. By faith, we have His seed, His divine nature now dwelling within us. So we are not what we were. We are no longer defined as we once were. We are new creations 
You right now, if you trust Christ, you really are free from the ruling and dominating power of sin. And so we make no more provision for the flesh, the Bible says. We make no provision for sin. We don't nurture it. We don't tolerate it. We don't keep it warm and available to us over here on the side as long as I can keep it nice and neat and private and manageable. No. Because sin is incongruent with who we now are. When a Christian sins, we are acting contrary to our nature because we've been made new. And so we no longer practice sin. We no longer stand in defiance toward God as we did with the old self. We now practice righteousness as with the new self. Do we do that perfectly? No. John has no illusion that we would. But do we practice righteousness increasingly and passionately, even joyfully? Yes, we should. And so when we read today, y'all, that Jesus came to take away sins, we ought to see that, one, first, as a comfort that by His grace given us on the cross, Jesus has taken away every sin which would stand to condemn us. But we also take that verse as an exhortation. Jesus came to take away sins. He came to take away the sin which controls us. The sin which condemns us died with Him on the cross. Also now, the sin which controls us is no longer our ruling power, our enslavement, our identity. No, because He came to make us new, pure, and holy like Him. And so let's embrace both sides of this wonderful coin, y'all. The same divine grace that forgives you freely and eternally is the divine grace that also transforms you and me. Or as John puts it, we now walk in the light as He Himself is in the light. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that our takeaway, Lord, would not be that it's up to us somehow to be sinless, to overcome, Lord, all that stands against us and prove that we really love You and we really deserve Your grace. Father, that, that day will never come. I pray, Lord, that we're more realistic than that and we see what the Scripture says. We, we of course, we sin. To say otherwise is self-deception. And, Lord, that our sin in no way disqualifies us. If we are Your children, Lord, then Jesus is our advocate. I pray we would, we would stand firmly this morning on that truth. But, Lord, I pray also that what John says, Lord, in all of its... Its sharpness would come home to our hearts. Help me, help us, Father, to see it. That if we are born of God, then we cannot practice sin any longer. We cannot, we must not tolerate it, embrace it, laugh at it, make any room for it. 
Lord, because we are new. The works of the devil have been destroyed. The ruling power has been broken. And we now belong to Jesus. Father, help us to to see what is shot through all of this, Lord, the wonderful gospel of Jesus, that He alone can make all of these things so. Only Jesus can make us righteous in Your sight, Lord. And He has through His own death. And only Jesus can give us a new heart that we would actually want to be righteous. Only you, Father, could give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, to empower it. And so, Lord, let us this morning draw all of our strength from you, Lord, all of our hope, all of our our joy, Lord, all of our aspiration and desire, Lord, to live as the new people of God, your children. Lord, let you, I pray that you would be the one, Lord, who, who stands at the foundation, the source, the life, the light. Lord, you animate all of it. And Father, when we fail, and we we won't make it through the day, Lord, I I trust that that's true for us. We will fail, even at our best, Father. That we will look squarely upon the cross of Jesus Christ and His glorious grace. And Father, that we will be renewed in Your forgiveness and in your exhortation, your call to righteousness, both as we fix our eyes on our Savior. Father, thank you for troubling scriptures that force us, Lord, to reckon with the full scope, Lord, of your forgiveness and your call to holiness. Father, let it be true for us that we have no greater ambition in life than this one. To know Jesus Christ, receiving His forgiveness, and walking in His light. And we ask it in His name. Amen.